This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Volume 4. Chapter 40. Reign of Justinian. Part 4. Dishonor might be ultimately reflected on the character of Justinian, but much of the guilt, and still more of the profit, was intercepted by the ministers, who were seldom promoted for their virtues, and not always selected for their talents. The merits of Trebonian the Quaestor will hereafter be weighed in the reformation of the Roman law, but the economy of the East was subordinate to the Praetorian prefect, and Procopius has justified his anecdotes by the portrait which he exposes in the public history of the notorious vices of John of Cappadocia. His knowledge was not borrowed from the schools, and his style was scarcely legible, but he excelled in the powers of native genius, to suggest the wisest counsels, and to find expedients in the most desperate situations. The corruption of his heart was equal to the vigor of his understanding. Although he was suspected of magic and pagan superstition, he appeared insensible to the fear of God or the reproaches of man, and his aspiring fortune was raised on the death of thousands, the poverty of millions, the ruins of cities, and the desolation of provinces. From the dawn of light to the moment of dinner, he assiduously labored to enrich his master and himself, at the expense of the Roman world. The remainder of the day was spent in sensual and obscene pleasures, and the silent hours of the night were interrupted by the perpetual dread of the justice of an assassin. His abilities, perhaps his vices, recommended him to the lasting friendship of Justinian. The emperor yielded with reluctance to the fury of the people. His victory was displayed by the immediate restoration of their enemy, and they felt above ten years under his oppressive administration, that he was stimulated by revenge rather than instructed by misfortune. Their murmurs served only to fortify the resolution of Justinian, but the resentment of Theodora disdained a power before which every knee was bent, and attempted to sow the seeds of discord between the emperor and his beloved consort. Even Theodora herself was constrained to dissemble, to wait a favorable moment and, by an artful conspiracy, to render John of Cappadocia the accomplice of his own destruction. At a time when Belisarius, unless he had been a hero, must have shown himself a rebel, his wife Antonia, who enjoyed the secret confidence of the empress, communicated his feigned discontent to Euphemia, the daughter of the prefect. The credulous virgin imparted to her father the dangerous project, and John, who might have known the value of oaths and promises, was tempted to accept a nocturnal and almost treasonable interview with the wife of Belisarius. An ambuscade of guards and eunuchs had been posted by the command of Theodora. They rushed with drawn swords to seize or to punish the guilty minister. He was saved by the fidelity of his attendants, but instead of appealing to a gracious sovereign, who had privately warned him of his danger, he pusillanimously fled to the sanctuary of the church. The favorite of Justinian was sacrificed to conjugal tenderness or domestic tranquility. 
the conversion of a praefect into a priest extinguished his ambitious hopes. But the friendship of the emperor alleviated his disgrace, and he retained, in the mild exile of Cyzicus, an ample portion of his riches. Such imperfect revenge could not satisfy the unrelenting hatred of Theodora. The murder of his old enemy, the bishop of Cyzicus, afforded a decent pretense, and John of Cappadocia, whose actions had deserved a thousand deaths, was at last condemned for a crime of which he was innocent. A great minister, who had been invested with the honors of consul and patrician, was ignominiously scourged like the vilest of malefactors. A tattered cloak was the sole remnant of his fortunes. He was transported in a bark to the place of his banishment at Antinopolis in Upper Egypt, and the prefect of the East begged his bread through the cities which had trembled at his name. During an exile of seven years, his life was protracted and threatened by the ingenious cruelty of Theodora, and when her death permitted the emperor to recall a servant whom he had abandoned with regret, the ambition of John of Cappadocia was reduced to the humble duties of the sacerdotal profession. His successors convinced the subjects of Justinian that the arts of oppression might still be improved by experience and industry. The frauds of a Syrian banker were introduced into the administration of the finances, and the example of a prefect was diligently copied by the quaestor, the public and private treasurer, the governors of provinces, and the principal magistrates of the Eastern Empire. The edifices of Justinian were cemented with the blood and treasure of his people, but those stately structures appeared to announce the prosperity of the empire, and actually displayed the skill of their architects. Both the theory and practice of the arts, which depend on mathematical science and mechanical power, were cultivated under the patronage of the emperor. The fame of Archimedes was rivaled by Proclus and Anthemius, and if their miracles had been related by intelligent spectators, they might now enlarge the speculations, instead of exciting the distrust of philosophers. A tradition has prevailed that the Roman fleet was reduced to ashes in the port of Syracuse by the burning glass of Archimedes, and it is asserted that a similar expedient was employed by Proclus to destroy the Gothic vessels in the harbor of Constantinople, and to protect his benefactor Anastasius against the bold enterprise of Vitalian. A machine was fixed on the walls of the city, consisting of a hexagon mirror of polished brass, with many smaller and movable polygons to receive and reflect the rays of the meridian sun, and a consuming flame was darted to the distance perhaps of two hundred feet. The truth of these two extraordinary facts is invalidated by the silence of the most authentic historians, and the use of burning glasses was never adopted in the attack or defense of places. Yet the admirable experiments of a French philosopher have demonstrated the possibility of such a mirror, and, since it is possible, I am more disposed to attribute the art to the greatest mathematicians of antiquity than to give the merit of the fiction to the idle fancy of a monk or a sophist. According to another story, Proclus applied sulfur to the destruction of the Gothic fleet. In a modern imagination, the name of sulfur is instantly connected with the suspicion of gunpowder.
and that suspicion is propagated by the secret arts of his disciple Anthemius. A citizen of Tralles in Asia had five sons, who were all distinguished in their respective professions by merit and success. Olympius excelled in the knowledge and practice of the Roman jurisprudence. Discorus and Alexander became learned physicians, but the skill of the former was exercised for the benefit of his fellow citizens, while the more ambitious brother acquired wealth and reputation at Rome. The fame of Metrodorus the grammarian and of Anthemius the mathematician and architect reached the ears of the emperor Justinian, who invited them to Constantinople. And while the one instructed the rising generation in the schools of eloquence, the other filled the capital and provinces with more lasting monuments of his art. In a trifling dispute relative to the walls or windows of their contiguous houses, he had been vanquished by the eloquence of his neighbor Zeno. But the orator was defeated in his turn by the master of mechanics, whose malicious, though harmless stratagems, are darkly represented by the ignorance of Agathius. In a lower room, Anthemius arranged several vessels, or cauldrons of water, each of them covered by the wide bottom of a leathern tube, which rose to a narrow top and was artificially conveyed among the joists and rafters of the adjacent building. A fire was kindled beneath the cauldron. The steam of the boiling water ascended through the tubes. The house was shaken by the efforts of imprisoned air, and its trembling inhabitants might wonder that the city was unconscious of the earthquake which they had felt. At another time, the friends of Zeno, as they sat at table, were dazzled by the intolerable light which flashed in their eyes from the reflecting mirrors of Anthemius. They were astonished by the noise which he produced from the collision of certain minute and sonorous particles. And the orator declared in tragic style to the Senate that a mere mortal must yield to the power of an antagonist who shook the earth with the trident of Neptune and imitated the thunder and lightning of Jove himself. The genius of Anthemius and his colleague Isidore the Malaysian was excited and employed by a prince whose taste for architecture had degenerated into a mischievous and costly passion. His favorite architects submitted their designs and difficulties to Justinian, and discreetly confessed how much their laborious meditations were surpassed by the intuitive knowledge of celestial inspiration of an emperor, whose views were always directed to the benefit of his people, the glory of his reign, and the salvation of his soul. The principal church, which was dedicated by the founder of Constantinople to St. Sophia, or the Eternal Wisdom, had been twice destroyed by fire. After the exile of John Chrysostom, and during the Nica of the Blue and Green Factions, no sooner did the tumult subside than the Christian populace deplored their sacrilegious rashness. But they might have rejoiced in the calamity had they foreseen the glory of the new temple, which at the end of forty days was strenuously undertaken by the piety of Justinian. The ruins were cleared away, a more spacious plain was described, and as it required the consent of some proprietors of ground, they obtained a most exorbitant terms from the eager desires and timorous conscience of the monarch. Anthemius formed the design, and his genius directed the hands of ten thousand workmen, whose payment in pieces of fine silver was never delayed beyond the evening.
The emperor himself, clad in a linen tunic, surveyed each day their rapid progress, and encouraged their diligence by his familiarity, his zeal, and his rewards. The new cathedral of St. Sophia was consecrated by the patriarch, five years, eleven months, and ten days from the first foundation, and in the midst of the solemn festival, Justinian exclaimed with devout vanity, Glory be God, who hath thought me worthy to accomplish so great a work. I have vanquished thee, O Solomon. But the pride of the Roman Solomon, before twenty years had elapsed, was humbled by an earthquake, which overthrew the eastern part of the dome. The splendor was again restored by the perseverance of the same prince, and in the thirty-sixth year of his reign, Justinian celebrated the second dedication of a temple which remains, after twelve centuries, a stately monument of his fame. The architecture of St. Sophia, which is now converted into the principal mosque, has been imitated by the Turkish sultans, and that venerable pile continues to excite the fond admiration of the Greeks and the more rational curiosity of European travelers. The eye of the spectator is disappointed by an irregular prospect of half-domes and shelving roofs. The western front, the principal approach, is destitute of simplicity and magnificence, and the scale of dimensions has been much surpassed by several of the Latin cathedrals. But the architect who first erected an aerial cupola is entitled to the praise of bold design and skillful execution. The dome of St. Sophia, illuminated by four and twenty windows, is formed with so small a curve that the depth is equal to only one-sixth of its diameter. The measure of that diameter is one hundred and fifteen feet, and the lofty center, where a crescent has supplanted the cross, rises to the perpendicular height of one hundred and eighty feet above the pavement. The circle which encompasses the dome lightly reposes on four strong arches, and their weight is firmly supported by four massy piles, whose strength is assisted on the northern and southern sides by four columns of Egyptian granite. The Greek cross, inscribed in a quadrangle, represents the form of the edifice. The exact breadth is 243 feet, and 269 may be assigned for the extreme length from the sanctuary in the east to the nine western doors which open into the vestibule and form thence into the narthex or exterior portico. That portico was the humble station of the penitents. The nave or body of the church was filled by the congregation of the faithful, but the two sexes were prudently distinguished, and the upper and lower galleries were allotted for the more private devotion of the women. Beyond the northern and southern piles, a balustrade, terminated on either side by the thrones of the emperor and the patriarch, divided the nave from the choir, and the space, as far as the steps of the altar, was occupied by the clergy and singers. The altar itself, a name which insensibly became familiar to Christian ears, was placed in the eastern recess, artificially built in the form of a demi-cylinder, and the sanctuary communicated by several doors with the sacristy, the vestry, the baptistry, and the contiguous buildings subservient either to the pomp of worship or the private use of the ecclesiastical ministers. The memory of past calamities inspired Justinian with a wise resolution. 
that no wood except for the doors should be admitted into the new edifice and the choice of materials was applied to the strength the lightness or the splendor of their respective parts the solid piles which contained the cupola were composed of huge blocks of freestone hewn into squares and triangles fortified by circles of iron and firmly cemented by the infusion of lead and quicklime but the weight of the cupola was diminished by the levity of its substance which consists either of pumice stone that floats in the water or of bricks from the isle of rhodes five times less ponderous than the ordinary sort the whole frame of the edifice was constructed of brick but those base materials which concealed by a crust of marble and the inside of saint sophia the cupola the two larger and six smaller semi-domes the walls the hundred columns and the pavement delight even the eyes of barbarians with a rich and variegated picture a poet who beheld the primitive luster of saint sophia enumerates the colors the shades and the spots of ten or twelve marbles jaspers and peripheries which nature had profusely diversified and which were blended and contrasted as it were by a skilful painter the triumph of christ was adorned with the last spoils of paganism but the greater part of these costly stones was extracted from the quarries of asia minor the isles and continents of greece egypt africa and gaul eight columns of periphery which aurelian had placed in the temple of the sun were offered by the piety of a roman matron eight others of green marble were presented by the ambitious zeal of the magistrates of ephesus both are admirable by their size and beauty but every order of architecture disclaims their fantastic capital a variety of ornaments and figures was curiously expressed in mosaic and the images of christ of the virgin of saints and of angels which have been defaced by turkish fanaticism were dangerously exposed to the superstition of the greeks according to the sanctity of each object the precious metals were distributed in thin leaves or in solid masses the balustrade of the choir the capitals of the pillars the ornaments of the doors and galleries were of gilt bronze the spectator was dazzled by the glittering aspect of the cupola the sanctuary contained forty thousand pounds weight of silver and the holy vases and vestments of the altar were of the purest gold enriched with inestimable gems before the structure of the church had arisen two cubits above the ground forty-five thousand two hundred pounds were already consumed and the whole expense amounted to three hundred and twenty thousand each reader according to the measure of his belief may estimate their value either in gold or silver but the sum of one million sterling is the result of the lowest computation a magnificent temple is a laudable monument of national taste and religion and the enthusiast who entered the dome of saint sophia might be tempted to suppose that it was the residence or even the workmanship of the deity yet how dull is the artifice how insignificant is the labor if it be compared with the formation of the vilest insect that crawls upon the surface of the temple so minute a description of an edifice which time has respected may attest the truth and excuse the relation of the innumerable works 
both in the capital and provinces, which Justinian constructed on a smaller scale and less durable foundations. In Constantinople alone, and the adjacent suburbs, he dedicated twenty-five churches to the honor of Christ, the Virgin, and the saints. Most of these churches were decorated with marble and gold, and their various situation was skillfully chosen in a populous square or a pleasant grove, on the margin of the seashore or on some lofty eminence which overlooked the continents of Europe and Asia. The Church of the Holy Apostles at Constantinople and that of St. John at Ephesus appear to have been formed on the same model. Their domes aspired to imitate the cupolas of St. Sophia, but the altar was more judiciously placed under the center of the dome, at the junction of four stately porticos, which more accurately expressed the figure of the Greek cross. The Virgin of Jerusalem might exult in the temple erected by her imperial votary on a most ungrateful spot, which afforded neither ground nor materials to the architect. A level was formed by raising part of a deep valley to the height of the mountain. The stones of a neighboring quarry were hewn into regular forms, and each block was fixed on a peculiar carriage drawn by forty of the strongest oxen, and the roads were widened for the passage of such enormous weights. Lebanon furnished her loftiest cedars for the timbers of the church, and the seasonable discovery of a vein of red marble supplied its beautiful columns, two of which, the supporters of the exterior portico, were esteemed the largest in the world. The pious munificence of the emperor was diffused over the Holy Land, and if reason should condemn the monasteries of both sexes, were built or restored by Justinian. Yet charity must applaud the wells which he sunk, and the hospitals which he founded for the relief of the weary pilgrims. The schismatical temper of Egypt was ill-entitled to the royal bounty, but in Syria and Africa some remedies were applied to the disasters of wars and earthquakes, and both Carthage and Antioch, emerging from their ruins, might revere the name of their gracious benefactor. Almost every saint in the calendar acquired the honors of a temple. Almost every city in the empire obtained the solid advantages of bridges, hospitals, and aqueducts but the severe liberality of the monarch disdained to indulge his subjects in the popular luxury of baths and theaters. While Justinian labored for the public service, he was not unmindful of his own dignity and ease. The Byzantine palace, which had been damaged by the conflagration, was restored with new magnificence, and some notion may be conceived of the whole edifice by the vestibule or hall which from the doors, perhaps, or the roof, was surnamed Schals, or the Brazen. The dome of a spacious quadrangle was supported by massy pillars. The pavement and walls were encrusted with many colored marbles. The emerald green of Laconia, the fiery red, and the white Phrygian stone, intersected with veins of a sea-green hue. The mosaic paintings of the dome and sides represented the glories of the African and Italian triumphs. On the Asiatic shore of the Propontis, at a small distance to the east of Chalcedon, the costly palace and gardens of Horaeum were prepared for the summer residence of Justinian, and more especially of Theodora. The people of the age have celebrated the rare alliance of nature and art. The harmony of the nymphs 
of the groves, the foundations, and the waves. Yet the crowd of attendants who followed the court complained of their inconvenient lodgings, and the nymphs were too often alarmed by the famous Porfirio, a whale of ten cubits in breadth and thirty in length, who was stranded at the mouth of the river Sangari, after he had infested more than half a century the seas of Constantinople. The fortifications of Europe and Asia were multiplied by Justinian, but the repetition of those timid and fruitless precautions exposes to a philosophic eye the debility of the empire. From Belgrade to the Euxin, from the conflux of the Save to the mouth of the Danube, a chain of above fourscore fortified places was extended along the banks of the great river. Single watch-towers were changed into spacious citadels. Vacant walls, which the engineers contracted or enlarged according to the nature of the ground, were filled with colonies or garrisons. A strong fortress defended the ruins of Trajan's Bridge, and several military stations affected to spread beyond the Danube the pride of the Roman name. But that name was divested of its terrors. The barbarians, in their annual inroads, passed and contemptuously repassed before these useless bulwarks, and the inhabitants of the frontier, instead of reposing under the shadow of the general defense, were compelled to guard with increasing vigilance their separate habitations. The solitude of ancient cities was replenished. The new foundations of Justinian acquired, perhaps too hastily, the epithets of impregnable and populous, and the auspicious place of his own nativity attracted the grateful reverence of the vainest of princes. Under the name of Justinia Prima, the obscure village of Teresium became the seat of an archbishop and a prefect, whose jurisdiction extended over seven warlike provinces of Illyricum, and the corrupt appellation of Guestendil still indicates, about twenty miles to the south of Sophia, the residence of a Turkish Sanjak. For the use of the emperor's countryman, a cathedral, a place, and an aqueduct were speedily constructed. The public and private edifices were adapted to the greatness of a royal city, and the strength of the walls resisted during the lifetime of Justinian the unskillful assaults of the Huns and Sclavonians. Their progress was sometimes retarded, and their hopes of rapine were disappointed by the innumerable castles which in the provinces of Dacia, Epirus, Thessaly, Macedonia, and Thrace, appeared to cover the whole face of the country. Six hundred of these forts were built or repaired by the emperor, but it seems reasonable to believe that the far greater part consisted only of a stone or brick tower, in the midst of a square or circular area, which was surrounded by a wall and ditch, and afforded, in a moment of danger, some protection to the peasants and cattle of the neighboring villages. Yet these military works, which exhausted the public treasure, could not remove the just apprehensions of Justinian and his European subjects. The warm baths of Anchialis and Thrace were rendered as safe as they were salutary. But the rich pastures of Thessalonica were foraged by the Scythian cavalry. The delicious Val of Tempe, three hundred miles from the Danube, was continually alarmed by the sound of war and no unfortified spot, however distant or solitary, could securely enjoy the blessings of peace. 
the straits of Thermopylae, which seemed to protect, but which had so often betrayed the safety of Greece, were diligently strengthened by the labors of Justinian. From the edge of the seashore, through the forests and valleys, and as far as the summit of the Thessalian mountains, a strong wall was continued, which occupied every practicable entrance. Instead of a hasty crowd of peasants, a garrison of two thousand soldiers was stationed along the rampart. Granaries of corn and reservoirs of water were provided for their use, and, by a precaution that inspired the cowardice which it foresaw, convenient fortresses were erected for their retreat. The walls of Corinth, overthrown by an earthquake, and the moldering bulwark of Athens and Plataea, were carefully restored. The barbarians were discouraged by the prospect of successive and painful sieges, and the naked cities of the Peloponnesus were covered by the fortifications of the Isthmus of Corinth. At the extremity of Europe, another peninsula, the Thracian Chersonesus, runs three days' journey into the sea, to form, with the adjacent shores of Asia, the Straits of the Hellespont. The intervals between eleven populous towns were filled by lofty woods, fair pastures, and arable lands, and the isthmus of thirty-seven stadia, or furlongs, had been fortified by a Spartan general nine hundred years before the reign of Justinian. In an age of freedom and valor, the slightest rampart may prevent a surprise, and Procopius appears insensible to the superiority of ancient times, while he praises the solid construction and double parapet of a wall whose long arms stretched on either side into the sea, but whose strength was deemed insufficient to guard the Chersonesus, if each city, and particularly Gallipoli and Cestus, had not been secured by their peculiar fortifications. The long wall, as it was emphatically styled, was a work as disgraceful in the object as it was respectable in the execution. The riches of a capital diffused themselves over the neighboring country, and the territory of Constantinople, a paradise of nature, was adorned with the luxurious gardens and villas of the senators and opulent citizens. But their wealth served only to attract the bold and rapacious barbarians. The noblest of the Romans, in the bosom of peaceful indolence, were led away into Scythian captivity, and their sovereign might view from his palace the hostile flames which were insolently spread to the gates of the imperial city. At the distance of only forty miles, Anastasius constrained to establish a last frontier, his long wall of sixty miles from the Propontis to the Euxine, proclaimed the impotence of his arms, and, as the danger became more imminent, new fortifications were added by the indefatigable prudence of Justinian. Asia Minor, after the submission of the Isaurians, remained without enemies and without fortifications. Those bold savages, who had disdained to be the subjects of Gallienus, persisted two hundred and thirty years in a life of independence and rapine. The most successful princes respected the strength of the mountains and the despair of the natives. Their fierce spirit was sometimes soothed with gifts and sometimes restrained by terror, and a military count with three legions fixed his permanent and ignominious station in the heart of the Roman provinces. But no sooner was the vigilance of power relaxed or diverted 
than the light-armed squadrons descended from the hills and invaded the peaceful plenty of Asia. Although the Isaurians were not remarkable for stature or bravery, want rendered them bold, and experience made them skillful in the exercise of predatory war. They advanced with secrecy and speed to the attack of villages and defenseless towns. Their flying parties have sometimes touched the Hellespont, the Euxine, and the gates of the Tarsus, Antioch, or Damascus, and the spoil was lodged in their inaccessible mountains before the Roman troops had received their orders, or the distant province had computed its loss. The guilt of rebellion and robbery excluded them from the rights of national enemies, and the magistrates were instructed, by an edict, that the trial or punishment of an Isaurian, even on the festival of Easter, was a meritorious act of justice and piety. If the captives were condemned to a domestic slavery, they maintained with their sword or dagger the private quarrel of their masters, and it was found expedient for the public tranquillity to prohibit the service of such dangerous retainers. When their countrymen, Tarcolaceus, or Zeno, ascended the throne, he invited a faithful and formidable band of Isaurians, who insulted the court and city, and were rewarded by an annual tribute of five thousand pounds of gold. But the hopes of fortune depopulated the mountains, luxury enervated the hardiness of their minds and bodies, and in proportion as they mixed with mankind, they became less qualified for the enjoyment of poor and solitary freedom. After the death of Zeno, his successor, Anastasius, suppressed their pensions, exposed their persons to the revenge of the people, banished them from Constantinople, and prepared to sustain a war which left only the alternative of victory or servitude. A brother of the last emperor usurped the title of Augustus. His cause was powerfully supported by the arms, the treasures, and the magazines collected by Zeno and the native Isaurians must have formed the smallest proportion of the hundred and fifty thousand barbarians under his standard, which was sanctified for the first time by the presence of a fighting bishop. Their disorderly numbers were vanquished in the plains of Phrygia by the valor and discipline of the Goths. But a war of six years almost exhausted the courage of the emperor. The Isaurians retired to their mountains. Their fortresses were successively besieged and ruined. Their communication with the sea was intercepted. The bravest of their leaders died in arms. The surviving chiefs, before their execution, were dragged in chains through the Hippodrome. A colony of their youth was transplanted into Thrace, and the remnant of the people submitted to the Roman government. Yet some generations elapsed before their minds were reduced to the level of slavery. The populous villages of Mount Taurus were filled with horsemen and archers, they resisted the imposition of tributes, but they recruited the armies of Justinian, and his civil magistrates, the proconsul of Cappadocia, the count of Isauria, and the praetors of Lyconia and Pisidia, were invested with military power to restrain the licentious practice of rapes and assassinations. End of chapter 40, part 4